Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. At the very end of 2020, the United States Congress passed what is known as an omnibus appropriations bill to fund the U.S. federal government for the next fiscal year. And tucked into this massive appropriations package is a novel approach to peacebuilding in Israel and Palestine. The Nida M. Lowy Middle East Partnership for Peace Act provides $250 million over five years to grassroots efforts to support peace and reconciliation programs for Israelis and Palestinians. It also goes to support economic development in Palestine. This act is deliberately modeled on a piece of legislation from the 1980s, which supported grassroots peacebuilding efforts between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. That effort is credited with laying the foundation for the Good Friday Agreement. My guest today, Joel Brunold, is Managing Director of the S. Daniel Abrams Center for Middle East Peace and former Executive Director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace, where he was the prime advocate for the piece of legislation we are discussing today. We kick off discussing what the act entails and how it is intended to spur support for a multinational fund for grassroots peacebuilding efforts in the region. And with the official peace process between Israel and Palestine seemingly dead, we discuss what political impact this bottom-up approach to peace may have on the situation on the ground in Israel and Palestine. With all that has been going on in Washington over the past several weeks, this piece of bipartisan legislation did not, I think, get the attention it deserves. So I was very glad to have Joel Brunold on the podcast to discuss it with me today. I think you'll appreciate this conversation. I know I did. And uh, towards the end, we do get into, I think, a really interesting, almost philosophical discussion of what peace building really means. As always, feel free to reach out to me. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email using the contact button. I love hearing from you guys. Let me know if there is anything on your mind. If there are certain topics you'd like me to cover, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Joel Brunold. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
within the omnibus, um, mm-hmm. the Congress passed the Nita M. Lowy uh, Middle East Partnership for Peace Act. Nita M. Lowy is a uh, now retired, a long-term member of Congress from Westchester, New York, who was head of the Appropriations Committee, I believe. Yeah, uh, in and- the House, the first, the first female leader and a, a long-time uh, leader on global health, on mm-hmm. women's rights. And yeah. on supporting civil society in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, in, in like the global development circles in which I run, she is a beloved figure for helping steer funding and appropriations for uh, reproductive health around the world. Also, also the, uh, the Sesame Street loves her. Uh, she's a big defender of, of PBS and a few others. And she's mm-hmm. all in all the sort of member that pe- all of her staff adore. And you always know that's a great member of Congress when all of her staff adore her today um so the the act establishes um a new fund two new funds uh one focused on people-to-people work so uh focused on how do we build uh from the bottom up people-to-people relationships between jews and arabs israelis and palestinians and the second uh establishes a new program within uh the dfc the new international Development Finance Bureau uh, to fund an economic development program in the West Bank and Gaza focused on building the Palestinian economy and improving trade relationships between the Palestinian economy and the state of Israel. Mm. So so it's bifurcated. So so it's part part is is the people to people kind of grassroots peace building. The other is sort of economic development in uh, the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Yeah, and it's a it's it's a fifty million dollar a year program, and it's an authorizing piece of legislation. So this isn't a one year appropriation, but rather establishes the fund by uh, adjusting the uh, Foreign Assistance Act of nineteen sixty one, uh, and also giving a ten year authorization for this new DFC program. Uh, and so, how do you envision having worked on this? Getting this piece of legislation uh, enacted into law, how, how do you envision this um, actually manifesting itself and, and evolving over the next few years as this authorizing legislation gets implemented? Like, what are some of the next steps? Well, I think it's really key to put this in context. Congress hasn't passed a positive piece of legislation to do with the Israelis and Palestinians since 1993 uh, with the qualified industrial zones. Uh, Congress is very active on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it's traditionally around punishment and limitation uh, of assistance to Palestinians and military assistance to Israel. So here we're really resetting the congressional attitudes and giving a steer to the administration that not only is Congress... uh, tolerating assistance to the Palestinians and assistance to peace building, but is encouraging it. And so the Biden team comes in, not just with a permissive attitude, but an encouraging attitude from Congress to think broader. And one of the key aspects of the act um, is to integrate USAID and the DFC into state about how they think about this program so that the grassroots work and the economic work uh, isn't an afterthought, but becomes an essential element. And integral in the act is a multilateral push to say that other countries should be contributing to the fund. And it it sets up the administration not only to make this a central piece of their efforts of how do they sort of restore some trust and and faith amongst the populations to get back onto a, a track towards a peace process, but also how can they work transatlantically and in the region to build a coalition of willings that the this sort of work is 
is seen as an investable type of operation for other allies of Israelis and Palestinians, with the U.S. being able to lead a strategy uh, as it as it has done successfully in the early nineties. Maybe just to to take a, a little step back here, like what's the theory of change behind mm-hmm. this effort? Where we sit now, the peace process is stalled. There is real no peace process of which to speak. What difference then does this act make? Sure. And it's a really important question, Mark. I think no one serious believes that by putting the leaders back into a bilateral negotiation, you're going to get a different result. I think that if we're honest and you look at the populations and the youth, uh, you see the highest numbers of skeptics. The younger you are, the more skeptical you are towards peace, towards the other, uh, your alienation. And, And that's a result both of demographic changes and lived experience. You know, the average age in, in Israel is around 32 now, in the West Bank it's around 21, and in Gaza it's 16 or 17. And you look at their lived experiences, and it's only been war and conflict and separation. And so if you want to start dealing with building constituents for peace and look at where people are, you need to start with a foundational approach of bridging the incredulity gap. The gap that even if people are willing to accept compromise, they think that the other side isn't. And they think that they're alone in their own societies. And so we need to start from the ground up again, thinking seriously about how do we use all the elements of U.S. power, not just hard power, but the U.S. is our relationship and the soft power there, uh, how Palestinians see the Europeans and other things to help nudge and move the populations into a place where we can build a different format that is not just antagonistic. I think the best way of saying this is civil society work and bottom up is never sufficient. Just by doing this, you're not going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But if you ignore it, you you also won't get there. This is a this is not nice. It's necessary. It's a necessary part of of moving the agenda forward. And what the act allows us to do is to fund this as a necessary step and to integrate it into the serious foreign policy discussions rather than it being sort of pushed on the outside. And I'll tell you, you know, during at the end of the Obama effort in sort of 2015, 2016, when uh, I was leading groups of civil society activists into the State Department, we would be told by senior officials that they, you know, now that they had failed at creating peace, they saw the value in this work. And that they wish they had the bandwidth and the budget to have seen it as, as, as something they could have done as they were pushing the political negotiations. And what this act does after over a decade of advocacy is equip our policymakers with both the bandwidth and the budget in order to make sure this is an integral part of any approach moving forward. It's interesting, you know, back when the U.S. could more credibly be considered an honest broker in these negotiations, say back in in the 90s or so, the the peace process, as you alluded to, was very sort of like top down. It was the U.S. sort of forcing the Israelis and the Palestinians to make concessions that they didn't really want to make and their people didn't really want to make and sort of imposing it upon them. Uh, But this sort of flips that script in a way. Yeah, and it, it... I think it it learns from mistakes and successes from other conflicts. So a mistake of Oslo is the first thing the Oslo Accords did was separate the populations, which you could say, okay, uh, but the the interests of the parties as the peace process started to stumble was to politically get their populations to agree with them. And so you had parties that, you know, they weren't investing in, 
in the sort of counter trends in their society uh, that wanted to get towards peace. And this isn't unique to Islam and Palestine. You look at the failure of the referendum in Colombia and other places, you can't stop civil society funding when you've got a process together. That's actually arguably when you need to do it even stronger. It's a place on Israel Palestine that we really failed. Whereas if you actually look at uh, the Northern Irish uh, conflict, and the role of civil society banging on the doors during the Good Friday process, you know, demanding their leaders get to a deal, you see a successful integration of civil society pushing their leaders to be braver than they wanted to be. And, you know, one of the reasons is the international community under US leadership came together uh, to create the International Fund for Ireland in 1986. And, you know, the year that the International Fund for Ireland, which was simultaneously a people to people and economic development fund created by Congress and funded by Europeans and Commonwealth states that came off the back of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. The the, in 1986, when it was launched, we were at a time where more people per capita were killed in Northern Ireland than were ever killed in Israel, Palestine. I, I even think in raw numbers. It was an intensely violent moment. And, you know, it wasn't until 1994 there was a ceasefire or until 1997 that there was a successful political agreement. And yet throughout that entire time and since it, there's been dedicated, smart, multilateral funding to try and sustain and keep the peace and to make space. I think that what we've managed to do after a decade of advocacy is to create the possibility of a similar model in the Israeli-Palestinian space. And the US end is one side and OMEP, the organization I used to run, you know, is also advocating in London and has got parliamentary support out of the UK, in Europe and out of key European capitals. I also think now with the Abraham Accords, there's opportunities in the Gulf to really create a coalition of a willing to replicate that same level of multilateral success to make sure that this isn't an afterthought and any honest account of where the populations are up to today recognizes a significant challenge and you know, problem that needs to be overcome about how do you return some some belief back to the populations themselves. So can you give me some examples of the kinds of, say, civil society organizations, the people-to-people peace-building groups that might, say, receive funding or be able to scale up or even, say, establish their work uh, because this funding is now being made available? Like, what are we looking like? What, 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 give me some examples of what you know, this might look like and the impact it might have on the ground. Sure. And you sort of asked for three different categories, and that's really important. I think, you know, the civil society groups for the past 10 years have been given sort of 10 million a year um, through USAID CMM grants and some EU grants as well. And it's helped establish... What's CMM? Sorry, the Conflict Management and Mitigation Grants Program at USAID, which Ooh, all met You stumped create. me with a uh, an acronym, sir. Look at this that. Is, this that's is good. A, that's that's a magic. I know that's a big deal on this podcast. Um, so there's been 10 years of building the field, which I think is very important so that there's already capacity there. So I'll give you some examples. So, you know, one example of a really successful program that builds relationships between Arabs and Jews within Israel, which is an important category, would be, for example, the hand in hand school program, where it is the only uh, educational format where Arabs and Jews are educated together in Israel. And they have seven schools uh, throughout Israel in communities. And uh, half of it comes from the Israeli taxpayer and half of it comes from philanthropy. And it offers an opportunity to educate children integratedly, uh, both bilingual and learning each other's narratives. And when you look at the Irish example, the importance of integrated education 
education, as well as other examples of even if you don't integrate the schools, that you have uh, twinnings of schools or shared teachers, which are other programs, is a wonderful example of programs that are, are expensive but are essential to try and overcome some of the deep societal divisions that just naturally exist in divided societies. Uh, another example of a cross-border program that touches on climate would be one uh, Echo Peace, uh, where this is a Jordanian-Palestinian-Israeli environmental group that was started in 94 that has helped put fresh water into the Jordan River for the first time, getting going from school kids to municipal to national agreements on water and energy and how climate actually offers an opportunity to build regional bridges around water energy nexuses. And there's tremendous opportunity to invest in that sort of space. The, the last one I'll give you... Um, you know, would be one called Oliver Without Borders, which was sponsored by the Near East Foundation, has been working in the West Bank since 1918. Um, and, you know, here was an olive oil program where there was a deficit of olive oil in Israel, a surplus in Palestine, but no trade relationships since the second intifada. And they took a grant from the US government and built those relationships that led to $23 million in trade. But one of the challenges was there was an opportunity to expand it even more. But this was just a civil society program. There was no opportunity to pass it to an economic side. What the new Lowy Fund does is if this now has graduated to be something truly that's linked into economic development, you know, the DFC can start investing in it and help it grow even further and have more farmers integrated into it. So there's huge opportunities to scale. But the last thing I'll say, Mark, and you asked, you know, what new initiatives you know, when a new pot of money comes along, it has a honeypot effect. You know, there are parts of civil society that are not traditionally working with the other. But because of the opportunity of legitimate funding, the Israelis really trust USAID, uh, and the fact that it was so widely supported by the breadth of political advocacy in the States, you have traditional civil society groups and, you know, Jewish federations who have twinned with uh, Israeli cities who will be attracted to be working with Arab citizens of Israel or in Jerusalem with East Jerusalemites or even some cross-border work, which is encouraging because you want this to, to um, have an osmosis effect and to sort of go across civil society and not just be kept in a specific box and I think that Israeli society, if you look at who's been involved in civil society work ever since uh, 2014, you've seen an increase in religious Zionists getting involved and others. So I'm really attracted about also the potential of new civil society groups coming online or other groups finding a place for themselves in sort of the important peace building work as well. You know, I, what you describe is sort of like a constellation of of different almost like small scale interventions, um, but many of them spread across, you know, relatively small geographic area as well, um, which is, as you said, very similar to what was happening in, in Northern Ireland in the, you know, late 1980s when this fund for Northern Ireland got off the ground, you know, as you said earlier, you know, something like 11 years after the fund for Northern Ireland was launched, you had the Good Friday Accords. Like, where do you see this, um, this, this act and the fund for the a broader multilateral fund for peace that it may inspire um, heading, say, in 11 years? I think, you know, Tony Blair was famous of saying on Northern Ireland and when he was the quartet representative here, you know, peace is made in the in the small details. If you look at what the funding Ireland's doing now around peace walls and other things, it, it, it doesn't seem massive to a diplomat dealing with war and peace. But as any local politician will tell you, if you can deal with dignity and improve people's lives in a way that is 
builds codependency, you that's how you truly build peace that is resilient. Because for me, and I'll, I'll tell you, Mark, peace isn't a state of being, it's a continuum. It, peace is not just the absence of violence. Okay, it's more than that. Peace is a resiliency against the violence returning. I think that, you know, in 11 years, I hope, you know, if we're in a, if, if the fund has done its job and it's inspired and enables us to think broader with a high ceiling, whether that's about using neutral land in Jerusalem to build a center for the different peace groups, whether it's about scaling these efforts. I would hope that in communities across Israel and Palestine, we've built a resiliency against violence and that people's respect is about, you know, for local leaders isn't just about who's been martyred or what army unit you served in. But alongside that, what did you provide for your community and what opportunities were created through the integration or the partnership of these communities who are traditionally against each other? And it's not Pollyanna-ish. It's real. The, The land is small. The climate is changing. And there's a lot of poverty, right? Even though, you you know, the inequality between Israelis and Palestinians is huge. But even within Israel, there's a lot of unequalness in the society and to finding ways that a rising tide leads all boats in a significant way. And the peace dividend that comes through peace being distributed, not just to the elites of society, but to everyone is really the way that you buy in popular support for this. And my real hope for the Lowy Act and hopefully for a bigger multilateral element that it sparks is that we can think about this in a less elite driven sense and more about how this affects the everyday lives of people who generally think that the peace process are, has nothing to do with them, or even more so that the concept of peace vociferously destroys them because they've been told that this is about changing who they are. I think that if you can start in that slow way demonstrating it's about empowering them to live their best life, but in a way that isn't antagonistic to the other, I think there's a real opportunity, but it's slow, hard, and difficult work. But what I'm encouraged about the Lowy Fund is, you know, it takes a long-term approach. And it's not just what one administration could do in a three or four year period, but has that longevity that I think is essential if we're going to be successful. I'm wondering what domestic political lessons here in the United States you can draw from the passage of the act. I mean, you know, on the one hand, this act comes at like a really remarkable time, uh, you know, at the end of the Trump administration, which gave up all pretense of being an honest broker in the Arab-Israeli peace and seemed to do everything it can to inflame and make what ostensibly had been the U.S. position, a two-state solution, farther and farther from a reality by things like moving the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, by um, defunding the UN Relief and Works Agency, the humanitarian agency that supports humanitarian aid in in uh, for Palestinians. Um, it seemed that everything the Trump administration did was antithetical to the idea of fostering a two-state solution and peace in the Middle East and was all about supporting and bolstering their partner, uh, the Likud government, the conservative government in in Israel. Um, yet you have this little this this piece of legislation snuck into an omnibus bill. So you know what gives. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, firstly, this was congressionally led, as I think your question demonstrates. Right, um, this was not an administration priority in any way, shape, or form. Look, uh, you know, this has been a 
over a decade effort. The first iteration of this, which was called the International Fund for Israeli-Palestinian Peace, was championed by Congressman Joe Crowley of New York, who at one point people thought was the next speaker um, in 2009. And it was in 2014 that we got Congressman Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska to be his bipartisan co-lead. And it was later on in 2016 that we managed to get um, senatorial support from Senator Kane, who we thought was going to be the vice president. And then it was in 2017 when uh, Senator Coons and Graham went to the region and came up with the idea of an of a economic fund inspired by a venture capitalist called Yedin Kaufman. And then there was a ton of compromises and negotiations between the various parties to eventually get to what we had. And uh, I you know, what I find fascinating about the passage of the Lowy Fund is if you actually look at progressive pieces, or I shouldn't even say progressive, of just peace building legislation or legislation that tries to adjust our foreign policy towards peace. In the past decade, there's very little that has passed. Very little. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've got the Global Fragility Act. Um, we've got the global hunger work that was done. Uh, to some people, the Build Act, but it's few and far between. And I, I would say that, uh, especially during the Obama era, there was a lot of belief that we could just get things done through the administration. But as we all know, what one administration does, the other one can take away. And so the focus on passing legislation, I think, is something we need to focus on. And for me, the main lesson is this. There is a politics policy continuum. And you are never going to pass through Congress something that is perfect policy. And you are also very, you have to avoid passing something that's just perfect politics that is terrible policy. And, you know, I think that where the fund, why I'm so proud of how it came out is it it really, it straddled that, that continuum exceptionally well. And I think it hit the sweet spot, attracting support from APAC and J Street, from Churches for Middle East Peace and the Conference of Jewish Presidents, which is a coalition you never really see. Um, and it, it was incredibly difficult to piece together. It took it took years, took a lot of trust um, and a lot of slow, diligent work and phenomenal congressional champions. But uh, and it, it also helped that you had at a time a Trump administration who just wanted to blow everything up and ignore Congress. I think that when that happens, it emboldens Congress to push back to say it wants its role in foreign policy. But I will say that the lasting political aspect of the fund on Congress, I would argue, was to reset where the center point lies when it comes to legislation towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. As I mentioned earlier, Congress's history on this conflict, one, you know, is often one that restrains the administration. It restrains them on where to put the embassy. It restrains them on about where the PLO can be. It restrains them on what assistance they can give. This is the first encouragement. You should be doing this. Here's money. Here's support. Here's a congressional advisory board to show that there's a political weight to what you're doing that we support. I think it's reset what centrist policy looks like. There's a ton of space to the right and there's a ton of space to the left for people who want to push uh, for more human rights and accountability to the left, for people who want to push for more work on incitement for the right. There's a lot of space that, of course, will continue to be and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will continue to be arguably the most political part of our foreign policy. And yet we could, we've managed to all come together in a place where we could at least all agree that investing from a bottom up 
towards peace is something that whether you are conservative, whether you are liberal, whether you're progressive, whether you're extremely pro-Israel, extremely pro-Palestinian, we can come around and say, you know what, this is an essential and. It's not an alternative to anything, but it's an essential addition. And for me, that's often the sweet spot about getting more progressive foreign policy or more peace-building foreign policy through Congress. It's very difficult to replace things, but I think we can create those additions. I mean, is there a concern, though, that this piece of legislation might uh, potentially be a substitute for some of the hard work that's required to reset America's approach to the Middle East? So, you know, I think it's a, it's a good question. I think there's there's multiple answers. I think the first is the legislation calls for a two-state solution. And even in the establishment clause of the People to People Fund calls for a sustainable two-state solution. So this is a political, you know, this and it's integrated into U.S. policy towards two states, which is a huge win. By the way, this is the first entity ever created that has an object- objective to create a two-state solution. So, you know... Um, I don't really know what more people would want than that uh, in terms of what's actually possible. Um, the second is, as I've said, it's an and, not an or. Uh, you can put as much pressure on Israel as you want. If you don't communicate to the people why you're putting that pressure on, you're not going to get anywhere. And, you know, peace building isn't a comfortable place. And nor should it be, which is why I've always found it weird that people put peace building as a progressive issue. It's not. Peace building is a place where everyone loses. You don't win if you're for peace, fundamentally in conflicts. And that's very hard to say. It's a very difficult thing to be in peace building. It it doesn't make anyone like you. And that's also progressives. Peace building is not the full adaptation of the Palestinian position, nor is it the full adaptation of the Israeli position. And so, yes, there are some progressive voices that would rather see the Palestinians win and the Israelis lose. And there are some, of course, conservative voices that would rather see the Israelis win and the Palestinians lose. And I appreciate that. I understand those positions. And as I've said, this is not this is not an alternative. It's an addition. But it's peace building. And so it, it exists alongside everything else we're going to do. But I'd also say to those, those skeptics, look at the political environment, as you mentioned, that this was passed in. Look at the realities of what it is to pass legislation in Congress where there is no bipartisan consensus of what the U.S. position should be on Israel-Palestine. And given that, to actually find consensus on this is a remarkable feat and one that shouldn't be seen as an excuse for liberals not to do something. This was bipartisan, Mark. Congressman Fortenberry is as responsible for this legislation as Chairwoman Lowy. You know, this wouldn't have got done without Senator Graham as much as Senator Coons was pushing as well. You know, this isn't this isn't a sop to liberals and it shouldn't be seen as that either. So, you know, I always say to advocates on either side, have at it. Go push your legislation. Go do whatever it is that you feel you need to do to try and get your point across. But as a peace builder and as a peace, you know, as someone who advocates and supports those people, you know, everyone's got to give a little if peace is going to happen. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Joel. That was a really good answer. You're welcome. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Joel. That was great. Very helpful. And like I said, I really appreciated his uh, final answer to a question that was a little bit goading on my part, but I I know Joel a little bit and I was glad to uh, draw that answer out of him. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.